Okay, well, good morning everyone. I'm aware there's probably a number of people in the room this morning who don't know me. I guess there's been quite a lot of new people joining the church. Well, just a brief introduction. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm married to Sarah, who is playing guitar this morning, so you've already seen her. Uh, we have two little girls, Sophie, who's nearly three, and then Joy, who is asleep in her pram over there. She's just turned one. Um, we came to this church just over a year ago. It was, in fact, July last year, so maybe even get on for a year and a half. Um, we actually knew Stuart and Melanie from... It was about 10 years ago now we first met them. Um, it was at the church they were at before, though, the one they were at when they came to plant this one. Um, so we, we got married uh, straight after we graduated in 2003, and we moved to a little town in Bedfordshire called Biggleswade, which if you go up and down the A1 very often, you will have heard about it, because it's right on the A1, you can't miss it. Um, we ended up living there because of our jobs, um, and we actually kept going over to church in Cambridge, where we've been, we've been studying, just for a little while, to settle into married life, settle into working. Um, but then someone told us that the church in St. Neots, which was just up the road, which turned out where Stuart and Melanie were, were thinking about planting a church into Biggleswade. So we went along, and we ended up joining that church. And in fact, we were there for about two and a half years before we actually went, then planted the church in Biggleswade with some others. Um, but we knew Stuart and Melanie very well, and we knew they'd come and planted this church here. For, for, for quite a while, we felt we were called long-term to Biggleswade. We thought that was going to be our home for a long time. So we'd, we'd bought a house, we'd, we'd settled down, we'd had Sophie, you know, we're building a life there. Um, but then God started to loosen our roots and make us feel like maybe that's not our permanent place. Um, and it was actually about a year before we ended up moving that God really started speaking to us about coming to join this church that was already going, it was already started. Um, and so we did. We, you know, we investigated it, we prayed about it, and in the end we decided, yeah, that's where God is calling us. So we moved. We moved our family here. We've bought a house here. We're settling in, building our life here. Um, so that's us. That's where we come from. So now on to preaching. We're going to be continuing in our series in John's Gospel. So last week, John Dean took us through the entirety of chapter 14 and talked about how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So this week, I'm going to be talking from John 15 and the first 17 verses. Now, all of these verses are Jesus speaking to his disciples. If you've got one of those red line Bibles where Jesus' words are in red, the whole lot of this passage is in red. It's all Jesus speaking to his disciples. But before I, want to read, before I read it to you, I just want to say a couple of things. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. It was going to happen just a few hours later. And the next day, he laid himself down on the cross and bought you with his blood. And you just need to let that rest on you for a moment before we read these verses. This was imminent. He knew it was coming. So just remember the context as we read these verses. And just look at his language. Look at the way he's speaking. So I'll just read it to you. This is John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, or gardener. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your revealed truth to us, and I thank you for its authority. Lord, your word is over us, and we want to submit to it this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us revelation of what this passage means. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, and help us to see the truth in it, and also how it applies to us today. And Lord, I just pray you would grant us obedience to what your word is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, in case you hadn't noticed, covers some hugely significant issues, fundamental issues at the core of our faith. It talks about how we became a Christian. It talks about why we became a Christian. It talks about what the normal Christian life looks like and how we should live. But before I dig into that, I just want to share something I shared at a prayer meeting at the beginning of October. If any of you were there, you may remember it. But it was a picture that God gave me a day or two before the prayer meeting. And it was that I saw a great field, I saw a great piece of earth-moving equipment, a great big digger, digging out huge clods of earth and placing them by the side of the road. Now what couldn't be seen at the time is that within these great lumps of earth there were golden statues, beautiful golden statues. Um, And people were going by on the road, they were seeing these lumps of mud, but they weren't really seeing anything different to the dirty field, it was just mud. And God was saying to me that, those golden statues are representing you. I want to speak to you, my people. But what he said is that I didn't bring you out of the dirt so that you could remain dirty, so that you could remain looking like you used to. I brought you out of the dirt because I want you to become clean. I want you to become different. I want you to become set apart. As I kept watching this vision and seeing how it unfolded, earth started to fall off these great big lumps and you could start to see bits of the statue underneath. Bits of gold started to poke through. And eventually it was all removed, and these beautiful golden statues were standing there. And then the people that were walking by, they didn't just pass on by. They saw these statues, they saw their beauty. And I saw someone reach out and touch one, and they became golden as well. And I felt God was saying that, you know, what what he's calling us to is to not remain the same way we are. When he saves us, we are changed, we are transformed, we are something different. And he wants us to look different. The expectation is that we would look different to the world. And people would see that and they would see God's glory in us and be changed themselves. Um, But the, the, the theme, the words that I got throughout that picture was that God wanted us to take obedience and discipleship seriously. And these words, certainly obedience is something that in our kind of church, in a charismatic church, we can sometimes feel uncomfortable with. We don't quite understand sometimes how obedience really fits in the Christian life, what its purpose is. We know that we're not saved by being obedient. We don't earn our salvation. So we need to wrestle with how it fits in, what what role it really plays in the Christian life, and that's what I want to go after today. So just a few words on the overall structure of the passage before I get into detail. 
There's kind of two halves, really. You've got verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 17. They are different, but they're intimately related to one another. In the first eight verses, Jesus is explaining this metaphor about how he is the the vine, we are the branches. You know, he's our source. He's our, our nourishment. He's where our power comes from. We're branches in him. So he explains this metaphor and what it means. Then in verses 9 to 17, we get his commentary or his application of that metaphor, what it really means for our lives. But both halves speak of remaining or abiding. Remaining is kind of, you know, in some ways, a better translation of the word that we get abide in the ESV I was just reading from. But both halves talk about remaining. The first eight verses talking about remaining in the vine, remaining in Jesus. And then 9 to 17 are talking about remaining in his love. But the goal throughout is fruitfulness, whatever that means. I'll try and unpack that as we go. But the goal in both halves is fruitfulness. And the results that we see are, first of all, God gets the glory in our devotion to him. We also see that we experience the fullest joy that is possible. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus wants to put his joy in us and it will be full. And then we also see another result is love. Love for Jesus, abiding in his love, and love for one another within the church with other believers. And there's a consistency in that with what Jesus taught when people asked him what the greatest commandment was. I don't know if you remember those verses. So Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, I'll just read those to you. This is one of the Pharisees questioning Jesus. He says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is the goal. The reason God loves us, his objective in loving us, is that we would love him above all else, that he would be the most valuable thing to us, give us the most satisfaction, and that we would also love one another. So now I'm just going to go through, I'm not going to go through every single verse, Uh, there's too much to unpack here. I'm going to pick out a few things that I think are key that God really wants to say to us this morning. So in verse 1, he starts off by saying, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Now this is the last, what we'd call the I am statements of John's gospel. There are six of them. The last one we heard last week was I am the way, the truth and the life. And here Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. But this is the only one of these statements that runs on into an additional kind of assertion or claim. And it says, not only am I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. So God the Father is also involved. Jesus' role is central. He is the vine. But the Father isn't just in the background. He is involved in trimming and pruning us, the branches. But if Jesus is the true vine, then what was the previous vine? What's he referring to? And it's, it's Israel. So in the Old Testament, the vine was a very common image for Israel. And you find it in lots of places. There are lots of places in the Psalms, lots of places in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, where Isaiah described like a vine with a purpose to, to grow up, to be obedient to God, to, to be light to the nations around them, and to bear fruit. And in particular, Psalm 80, I just want to read a few verses from that. So Psalm 80, verses 7 and 8 say, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, that is Israel. Bring them out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So God drove out other nations, gave them a land and planted them, Israel, this vine in a new land. And then verse 14 says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. 
And for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. So God planted the vine, that is Israel, but they failed. They should have been obedient, they should have been a light to the nations around them, but they failed. And so they were cut down and burned. But the last verse, after what I just read, says, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. So this last verse is speaking about how God, even as Israel are being cut down and burned, God is raising up Jesus. And so it's into this setting that Jesus comes. As Israel are being cut down and burned, he comes and he says to his disciples, I am the true vine. Let me have verse 2. And this is an interesting and challenging verse in many ways. But I'll just read it again. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. How can branches already in the vine, already in Jesus, be taken away? What's John saying? Is he saying that someone who is saved can lose their salvation? I've got a few people shaking their heads. That's good. <laughs> You're on the right page. The really, it's a really crucial question. People ask this often and don't necessarily understand the truth. But the biblical answer is a resounding, clear, emphatic, joyful, glorious no. We cannot lose our salvation. If you are truly saved, you are secure. That's the biblical view of union with Christ. If you are truly saved, you are secure to the end. And we base that on, on a whole load of texts. I'll read one. I'll just read a few. One, for example, is in John chapter 10, verse 27. We would have come across this earlier in the series. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The point is, you're my sheep. You are secure. Also, we have Romans 8, verse 30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are no dropouts. Nobody falls out of that chain. If you're justified, that is, you're saved, he says, you will be glorified. There are no justified people who get lost on the way to glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the kind of call Paul is talking about in this verse is the call of Lazarus by Jesus from the grave. That's the same kind of wording that's being used here. And so Jesus says, Lazarus, I know you're dead, now come out. And the call creates life. Jesus calls him, Lazarus comes to life. And that's what happens to everyone who's a Christian. God's sovereign call, when he calls us, creates the life. He brings our spirit back to life. And that is the really key changing point in our lives, in our experience Once that's happened, once you're called, you're going to be justified. Once you're justified, you're going to be glorified. Your eternity is secure. That's being born again. Also, we've got uh, Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the last day. 1 Corinthians 1 8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Well, 1 John 2 19 which brings in another useful thread. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John's explaining that these people who were taken away, who were cut off from them, 
we're not a part of them in the first place. And so there are lots of texts that show that those who are truly born of God, truly called, are secure forever. So then we come to John 15, verse 2. Every branch in me, in me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we've got to ask the question, what does take away mean? And we actually get it emphasized a bit later in verse 6. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away, taken away, like a branch, and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So there are people who are attached to Jesus in a way, they're in him in a way, who go to hell. This is difficult stuff to understand. So what do we make of it? We could say John is contradicting himself. Back in chapter 10, he says just the opposite. We read it earlier. Or we could give John the benefit of the doubt. He's very worthy of our trust. We could give him the benefit of the doubt. And we can say, okay, well, maybe we don't need to press this image of the vine that far. When it talks about being branches in the vine, maybe that is not just talking about people who are truly saved. Maybe that includes other kinds of people. What he's saying is that there is a kind of attachment to Jesus that isn't, that is not a saving attachment. There is a way to be in him or look like you're in him but not be saved. A kind of union with the vine that's not a saving one. And so those branches, when they get cut off, it's not compromising our belief of eternal security because they were never saved in the first place. Does that make sense? The clearest example of this is Judas. Judas was chosen by Jesus. He was one of the disciples. He was in their band. He had a relationship with Jesus And the really interesting thing is that when they went out to heal, to cast out demons, there's no evidence at all that the other disciples looked at him and said, how come Judas can't do this? He was doing it. He was performing miracles. He was doing these things in Jesus' name. And he was not saved. He was not born again. It was written in the Old Testament that he was going to betray Jesus. Jesus himself called him a son of perdition. He's going to be lost. He's not saved. But Jesus still chose him to have him in his band. And he gave him this unusual power to perform miracles. But he wasn't saved. Now the world may have looked at Judas at the time and said, wow, that that branch is in the vine, he's doing the stuff. He's with Jesus, he's performing miracles. And in one sense he was in the vine. But not in the born again sense. And here's another illustration, if Judas isn't enough for you. In Matthew 7 verse 22, Jesus says this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are Judas-type people. They've been in the church a long time. They've benefited from being around other Christians. They've got an external connection with Jesus. It looks like they're with him. They're in the church. They're physically present. They're maybe even performing all kinds of miracles, but they're not saved. This is difficult stuff. One more thing. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Paul said, in effect, the same thing. He says, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You can prophesy. You can perform miracles. You can tell a mountain to move, and it moves. doesn't mean you're saved. If you haven't got love, you're nothing. 
So the mark of a truly born-again person, a true Christian, someone who's really united to Jesus, is not miracles. It's a relationship with Jesus that produces love in you. That's what should be expected. That's what should happen. This fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of love, is the mark of a true branch. And that's really the point of this whole passage. If you read on further down in John 15, the second half, it talks about abiding in Jesus' love and to love other believers. So, verse 2, in summary, doesn't mean someone who is saved can lose their salvation, but it does warn that genuine salvation, really being truly united to Jesus, is more than church church membership. It's more than the things you do. It's more than miracles. It's bearing the fruit of love. Okay. So what is it that gets you saved in the first place? Verses 3 to 5 deal with that. I think Jesus was well aware from verse 2 that in hearing his words, people might be thinking, well, um, do I, maybe I need to bear fruit in order to be saved. Maybe that's what I need to do. I can get saved by bearing fruit. But he makes it clear this is not the case. Verse 3 says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. He says, already. He doesn't want them thinking there is still something they must do in order to be saved. Already. And he says it's because of the word. Now, the, the word that gets translated word is... <laughs> Logos, it kind of, it's the, reflects the entirety of Jesus' teaching. It reflects who he is. It's the word used at the beginning of John where it says that, you know, the word, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. It's that word. It's talking about the entirety of Jesus' teaching and it's, he's saying that it's already taken hold in your heart, you disciples. It's already in you, already because of the word. And he says then, you are clean because of this word. You are clean. And I think some people here today really need to hear that. You, you don't, maybe you don't feel clean. Maybe you don't want Jesus to come near you because you think you're going to make him dirty. Maybe even you're living with lingering feelings of guilt. Maybe you know you're saved, but you don't quite believe, you don't quite understand. You are clean. You think there is still dirt on you that is lingering. Now, this is really important. I need you to know, and I want you in your heart to, in faith, believe today. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dirty, disgusting, defiled your life has been, or how guilty you feel now. You can reach out to Jesus in faith. You don't make him unclean. He makes you clean. And Jesus wants to reach out. He wants to touch you and say, you are clean. In me, you are clean. I took your sin. I went to the cross. I suffered and died in your place for your sins. I give you my righteousness. You're clean. You've got a new identity. Stop saying that I'm unclean. Stop saying that I'm unworthy. Stop saying I'm dirty and disgusting and defiled. You're clean. You are clean. Do you understand? This is justification. It's what some people call the great exchange. All of our sin gets transferred onto Jesus. All of our uncleanness gets transferred onto him. He was punished for it. He gives us his righteousness. We are spotless. And the way this works out is that God doesn't simply look at a dirty, guilty person in the heavenly courtroom and just forgive him and say, you're guilty, I forgive you, go and sin no more. He doesn't, it goes way beyond that. He looks upon that guilty person and he says, you are not guilty. Now, forgiveness for, for, for us humans is a little bit understandable. We can get our heads around forgiveness a little bit because it makes sense to us. You know, we, we can get our hands around it. We can say, you let it go. You just don't hold it against them. But the things they did are still there. 
But this that Jesus is saying to us is outrageous. This is justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what you can say. Justified means. That's really what it means. No criminal record. We're clean. Jesus sees you and he says, My son, my daughter, you are perfect. You are spotless. You are blameless in me. And I want you to know that today. Then verses 4 and 5 further hammer home that bearing fruit cannot be what gets you saved. And they say this, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So you can only bear fruit if you're in the vine. That's what verse 4 is telling us. And if you're not in the vine, you can do nothing. That's what verse 5 says. So even if bearing fruit, even if the things you do could get you into the vine, if you're not in Jesus in the first place, you're unable to do those things. You can't bear fruit. That's what the verse is saying. So it's like a catch-22. Bearing fruit cannot get you in the vine. So if you're not bearing fruit, the problem is that you're not in Jesus. You're not abiding with him. Which means the solution isn't to try and bear fruit. The solution is to start abiding, to start getting into Jesus. And in fact, what those verses are saying is that bearing fruit is simply evidence that we're already saved. It's the confirmation or the verification that we really are, we really truly united with Jesus. And we get this reinforced in verse 8. It says, By this my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we bear fruit and it proves we are Jesus' disciples. And that brings glory to God. People see that we, are, we really are truly devoted to him and that glorifies God. So we've talked a lot about fruit this morning. What is this fruit? I haven't really defined what fruit is. It's throughout this passage. So let's, let's go into that in a little bit. It could be, looking at these verses, it could be obedience, it could be joy, it could be seeing people saved, new converts, it could be love, it could be Christian character. All of these things are true, but if you just say it's those things, one or all of those things, that's cutting short what it really means to bear fruit for Jesus. There's so much more. It's every single part, every outcome of our faith-filled, persevering dependence on Jesus, the vine. He's our source. Verses 9 to 10 in verses 9 to 10, Jesus is telling us to abide in his love, to remain in his love. And what that suggests is a, a persevering on our part that is somehow involved in this. However much God's love for us is gracious, free, and undeserved, our continued enjoyment and continued remaining in it depends in some part on our response to it, our deliberately taking part. Verse 10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So loving Jesus and obeying him go hand in hand. But John, just in the last chapter, John fourteen twenty one says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And so what we see here is that obedience to Jesus, as in a similar theme to what we were talking about earlier, obedience to Jesus proves that we genuinely love him, proves that we're connected to him. It doesn't get us in the vine. It's just proof. It happens. And this is what theologians might call sanctification in, in a way, because this is only possible through God's grace and his love for us, but we need to engage in the process. So once we get saved, we've got this process to work through for the rest of our lives to become more and more like him. And it's only possible because God loves us, because he's gracious to us. We have a responsibility to step into it. When Julian Adams was with us a week or two back, he talked about how God can set a prophetic vision before us. But we can miss out on it by not engaging and stepping in 
And that's really what I'm talking about here. There's a beautiful marriage between God's sovereign grace enabling us to become more like Jesus. We can't do it on our own. Uh, but also our responsibility to engage in the process, to obey his commands. And that's really what I felt. That vision I explained at the beginning about these clods of earth that were dug out of the field, that's really the, the sense I was getting through that whole vision, that God wants us to be mindful of this and to step in to our sanctification. So obedience is key. And then verses 12 and 17 call us to obediently love other believers. Verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. This is costly love. How did Jesus love us? It cost him his life. This is costly. He's calling us to love other people in the same way. To put aside our selfish desires. To to live for other people. To love them extravagantly and generously. Next I want to look at verses 14 to 15. Which talk about how we are friends of God. And I just want to unpack what that really means. The verses say this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. So the the first verse there says, Jesus is the Lord who commands us, and we're expected to obey. He is our Lord. His authority over us is absolute. Our obedience is expected. That makes sense in that kind of relationship. And if we don't obey, we're no friends of his. But again, obedience doesn't make you his friend. It's proof you are already his friend. It's natural fruit that should just simply come being in a relationship with Jesus. So also, it's therefore a telltale mark of authentic saving faith. Now, verse 15, he's simply saying we are his friends as well as his servants. And that's a really important distinction to make. It doesn't mean we're no longer servants. We're just simply friends or chums or buddies with him. We are friends as well as slaves or servants. A servant's obedience is implicit and unhesitating. He's not owed any explanation or rationale from the master. He should just simply obey whether he understands or not. But Jesus keeps nothing from us. That's what verse 15 says. He's revealed all things to us. So we're much more than simply servants to him. We're we're friends as well. We get to know what he's thinking and doing, why he's calling us to do certain things. And you can look at this if you think about rulers of the world, kings or presidents in the world. Every one of those people would have friends among his subjects, the people who he's responsible for. And these would be people he might reveal personal matters to, but they're still his subjects. Being friends with Jesus, our Lord, doesn't mean that the authority in that relationship is removed. That authority that's inherent in that relationship remains. So Jesus calls us his friends, but it doesn't mean we're authorized to call him our friend. And biblically, we can see this is the case. In the Old Testament, Abraham is called God's friend, and Moses is as well. But this leads James in his his letter in the New Testament to say, in James 2.23, not that God was called the friend of Abraham, but that he, Abraham, was called the friend of God. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus is unfriendly, but he must remain Lord of our lives to be obeyed. He's not a buddy to be befriended. You know, I've had lots of people in my life who have said to me, Jesus is my mate, he's my pal. He's not, he's your Lord. And we must remember that. And the last point I want to bring out before we go into some application is on verse 16. 
So just in case anyone is thinking too much of themselves, Jesus makes it clear in verse 16 that it's not because we're any wiser or better than other people. It's not because we made the right choices, but it's because Jesus chose us. Let me just read it to you again. So verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus chose us. If you're saved, that's the reason. Jesus chose us. We didn't choose him. I just want to read you a quote from, uh, from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, I believe the doctrine of election, that is, Jesus choosing us, because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. That's what happened. It's amazing. And it's one of the most principal causes for the joy that's talked about in verse 11. God chose us. What it means is that in eternity past, God looked upon me. He saw my pride. He saw my sin. He saw my dirtiness. He saw my shame. And he said, I want that man in my family. I'll do anything to have him in my family. I will pay for him to be in my family through the death of my son. That is love, in case you didn't notice. That is true love. That is outrageous love. We didn't make ourselves a Christian. He chose us. He called us. He spoke our spirit back to life. And in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 say that because of his great love, he made you alive when you were dead. What a saviour. What a saviour. All right, if you could uh, stand with me, please. Ben, if you could come back up. There's three areas that I want to try and apply for our lives today. Three areas where I think there might be many people in here today who need to respond and do some business with God. First one is that I'm aware there may be people here who are doubting whether you're saved. When you explore these kind of truths that I was unpacking at the beginning, doubtless the devil's going to come alongside and try and make you believe you're not saved even if you are. I can't tell you whether you are or not. God sees your heart. He knows what the state of your relationship with him is. But I do pray, God, that you would come and that you would reveal yourself this morning. Lord, I pray that you would call people to yourself. I pray that you would release new life in this church. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come now and just speak into people's hearts and bring them back to life if they are not. Lord, we want to see people truly united with you. We don't want to see people in the church who are not saved. If you want to pray for yourself, if you know you're not saved or if you're just unsure, it doesn't hurt to pray the same thing. Just ask God to come and call you to life, to bring your spirit back to life. This is rebirth. This is becoming a Christian. It's what we all need. 
Second area is if anyone's feeling unclean, you need to know this morning, Jesus has made you clean. He's made you spotless. He's given you his righteousness. Completely, you are not guilty. You are righteous. If any of you are troubled by lingering feelings of guilt, feeling that you're not as good as you should be, you need to know it's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. So if you're feeling unclean, if you're feeling guilty, I just encourage you this morning to come and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Come and ask Jesus for forgiveness. Come and confess your sin to him. Come and surrender to him as your Lord and Saviour. And then finally, I think there are some people here this morning who, who feel like the kind of obedience I talked about is not characteristic of your life. It doesn't come naturally. It's not how you feel. And if that's the case, you may need to repent. You may need to surrender to Jesus as your Lord, not just your Savior, because that's true salvation. He is our Lord and Savior, and this is true saving faith. So if anybody needs to work through any of those three issues this morning with Jesus, I just want to encourage you, if you want to raise your hand, we'll try and get some people to come and pray with you. He is the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. He is our source. He is our strength. He gives us everything we need. If we are truly united with him, he gives us everything we need to live the Christian life. And it's a life of obedience. It's a life of love for him and for other people that just comes as natural fruit. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to strain yourself to produce this kind of fruit. It's like an apple tree doesn't have to say, okay, it's fruiting time. There's an apple. Apple trees don't have to strain to produce fruit. They just exist. They just are apple trees. They produce apples. If you're truly united with Jesus, you will produce fruit. You will be obedient. You will love. And so, Father, I just pray that that would be more and more characteristic of our lives. Lord, if anyone here this morning is not truly connected to you, not truly united with a vine, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come now in your power. I pray that you would come and speak spirits back to life. I pray that you would break out in new birth here this morning. I pray you would wash people clean in your blood and wash away all guilt in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship our Lord.